Hello and welcome to another episode of Laying Down the Lore, a monthly podcast in which we aim to separate our ghouls from our goblins, our snotlings from our skaven storm fiends, and our bloodthirsters from our bloodletters, and generally ask, what up with this Warhammer stuff? My name is Ben Crone Barber and I know fuck all about Warhammer. With me is my co-host Christopher Crallen Allen. Yellow there. Who also knows fuck all about Warhammer. Truly very true. And my dear brother Darren. Dwarves are cool. Who knows so much about Warhammer, it's a wonder he has time to do anything else. After gathering online to slay some vermin in the name of Sigmar, this dichotomy between our levels of understanding became clear, and this series is an attempt to address that ignorance. Yo! What up, hoes? Yo ho ho! Dwarves! 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 What are we talking about this month? Elves. Nobblers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think well, it's pronounced Nobblers. <laughs> well, I have the answer to that question, Kral, in the form of a, a message that's been sent to us. You should have received a couple of packages in the post. and um, Oh, my God. It looks like oh, yes. uh, that they were sent from our, our little brother, Thorgrim Grudgebearer. Um, so here's oh, the message from, from him. Oh, grudgy baby. Ahoy, hi! How you doing, your pack of fannies? Thorgrim here. Word in the holds is you ugly bastards are about to embark on a wee journey through our histories, which I have to say has got a lot of us here at Karazakarak moist around the gusset. I've been chatting with a few of the lads and we've decided we'd like to contribute. As you know, we dwarfs fucking love a grudge. Oh, delicious grudges. Keeps our society ticking, you know. So to give you a wee taste of the life-affirming and soul-driving art of being a resentful shite, we've sent each of you your very own wee book of grudges. Over the course of the next few episodes, as you marvel at how fucking wonderful we are, we'd like you to keep a wee note of any grudges that might arise along the way. At the end of your journey, we'll tally them up, and whoever has the most will be crowned King Krabby Cunt. Now, get on with it. Happy grudging, fellas. Oh, Thorgrim. You're so generous. As grudgy as you so are. You Can we go. Have- yeah, I, I guess so, mate. I guess so. Yeah? Oh, yeah. boy. Crowl's oh. <laughs> bonk of cradges. <laughs> <laughs> those are, I think those are dwarven runes, Chris. <laughs> Why did you send me a copy of a Kama Sutra? <laughs> oh shit, oh Hang shit, on. wrong book, wrong book <laughs> Me and my Swedish uh, goblin pump wagon my, my, my preconceptions are destroyed, dwarves are very limber <laughs> This is excellent Thorgrim, this is really son good. of a bitch, I love it, I love it Hold on, before we continue, I literally need to get a pen that works I've got a million pens and all of them are dried up, I'll be too sexed Right, Kral, you're, you're going in the book for not having a pen <laughs> <laughs> are we uh, are we going to get petty about this? Kral for calling me petty. <laughs> You're going in Kral's bunk of cragches. <laughs> I think that's a G, bruv. Oh, you've made the bunk. <laughs> I mean, we're all laughing about this, but Descript already has three grudges in. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. My first grudge star was you not getting Descript working. 
Is this is this episode just going to be us filling out this book? Is it just going to be a recording of pen scribbling? It's, it's going to be pretty quiet, isn't it? Like <laughs> that should just be a chunks of our episode. Is just the three of us calling people out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> this exactly. week we're doing something different, you fannies. <laughs> <laughs> right that's you you're going in the book for calling us fannies no <laughs> exactly this is going to be the slowest episode ever uh, right well let's speed think well let's try and speed things up with a uh a crown and whatsapp recap a what's crap oh god i've got my book and my pen ready <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not writing his own recap grudge hold on i don't i don't, I don't think i've got enough ink in this pen it's brand new but i might need a second one <laughs> buying a buying a cheap pen grudge you're gonna need another book <laughs> oh god i am however gonna remove one grudge for both of you for having the restraint to not open the package from thorgrim before today um, i speak for him on his behalf he's very impressed <laughs> especially for Kral. Especially Kral. <laughs> Who doesn't get the concept of a Christmas present. For our listeners, Kral has opened almost every Christmas present I've sent him in the post weeks before Christmas for years, for years. I, I don't... What happens on Christmas Day? Is it just a completely naked tree? Well, more fool you for sending them so early. Well, you know... <laughs> you idiot. I blame myself for being so organized. I put yourself in the book for that. Okay, humble brag. That's a grudge. Can you grudge yourself? Ben, or is that yes. just weird? Humble yes. brag. Yes, you can. Yeah. Okay. Well, this still counts as a grudge, doesn't it? But you know, okay. I just I don't know if that was right et- grudging etiquette or you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. I think it's just yeah. It's the art of being a resentful shite, isn't it? That's what you this said, this is you? going to descend into us just filling the books up. So what I've got is descript. Ben for the humble brag and Kral for simply being Kral. <laughs> Fair. I thought we'd speed things on, you know, oh. cover all the bases. Just write Kral. I'm not sure that that's speeding anything on like that. Yeah, I'm just going to write Kral. <laughs> I'm also going to put fucking Amy in the book for enabling him. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Amy's going in the book. How dare you put up with Kral? Amy is in the book. I know it looks like it says Amy Embalmer, but that says Enabler. (laughs) 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 Right, crowd, what's that recap as? What's that recap? Okay, I'm going to try and make this as painless as possible. Last month, we rounded out our look at the Greenskins with an all-singing and all-dancing Greenskin chorus review of their war capabilities. We looked at the power of the wah, together with some of the spells the shamans use. Ben, can you list any of them for us, please? Oh, the shaman spell. The big, the big foot that comes down, like gro- oh, uh, yeah. gork, gork stomp or... I don't. Yeah, I don't know what it was called. The foot of um, Gork. That's it. The foot of Gork. Uh, the aptly named Gork's foot. <laughs> Gork's foot. We really went top shelf of the name of that one. Um, oh, what else was there? There's the big and the little wah. Um, oh, oh, there was the hand that came and like <laughs> the hand that came. There was a hand that came out of the sky. <laughs> It didn't do that. That's not how hands work. Um, it's like an invisible hand, and it would like pick them up. I think this is Little Wire, and it picks them up and picks up a bunch of greenskins, and then it dumps them somewhere on the battlefield, which is kind of it's quite stealthy, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. There was also the itchy wire. 
spell as well, Ooh, wasn't yeah. it? That, I thought yeah, that was yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that makes you, um, yeah, well, itch. That'll do, three out of four. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, is there before we crack on, I just want to say that, Ben, you're in the book now for knowing too much about greenskins. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, fair, fair. I'll take it. And it begins. Um, that was a few of the uh, spells. Was there, was there more than that? There was the hand, the foot, the itchy thing. Darren, was there another one? <laughs> That sounds like me in my 20s. <laughs> the hand, foot, the hand itchy the thing. Foot, the itchy thing. The hand, the foot, the itchy thing. <laughs> Darren, the name of Darren's bibliography. <laughs> no, the name of my bibliography is Juicy Pinkness. <laughs> is it bibliography or biography? It's a biography. I don't know why. The I name of, yeah, no, the name of my list of books is Juicy Pinkness. <laughs> I'll put myself in the book. <laughs> Oh, he's booked himself. <laughs> me, me for saying stupid shit. So the spells the shamans use, we followed this up with the examination of their weaponry, war machines, including Darren's nostalgia-induced orgasms over the machineries of destruction range. Nice. I mean, that's harsh, but fair. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> for uh, coughing. As well as orcs <laughs> and savage orc warriors, some riding grunters and snorters led the charge, followed by warbands of wolf-riding common goblins, spider-riding forest goblins, and squig-hopping night goblins. This mass of unfettered riding was followed by those who are not cavalry, aka infantry, in all their forms. Ben, can you <laughs> list some of the infantry? Um, there was the green one. No, and the dreaded trolls, <laughs> giants, and other monsters associated with the greenskin race. <laughs> Okay, I'm putting myself in the book for laughing at that. <laughs> Growl for not giving me a chance to answer his question. <laughs> what what were the infantry types? We talked because they were pretty standard, weren't they? There was like chopper dudes, arrow no, there was arrow boys and chopper boys, and there was a third one, I think. And that was kind of the same for all of them. And then the other guys. Okay, moving on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who cares? Because we're on dwarves this episode, right? Exactly. Dwarves. 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 Zombie. Zombie. Dwarves. Zombie. 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 A cranberries. So that was that. Enough of the orcs. Darren. Dwarfers. <laughs> Dwarf me. Toss me. Toss me. So this month starts our Bretonian episodes. Uh, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, shit. <laughs> the books were premature. Right, Darren, for pulling our leg. This month, our listeners will be surprised to discover is the start of Dwarf Session for ourselves. Yay! Yay! Dwarfs, 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 dwarfs. Dwarves then, one of the elder races of Warhammer and a kind of staple throughout fantasy writings since, well, really the start of fantasy writings. Um, <laughs> Just since. The end. The end. Thank you for listening. Um, <laughs> this has been laying down the dwarf. That was dwarves. I've just had a thought now for some sort of broadcast, uh, like the thought for the day, but grudge for the day. Welcome to yes. Grudge for the Day. Yes, <laughs> like I it. love that. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first off, there's the matter of spelling. The dwarves in Warhammer 
are D-W-A-R-F-S. None of this V-E-S shit. Mm. So that was done to make Warhammer dwarves distinct from dwarves of other fantasy uh, settings. What are dwarves called in um, Age of Sigmar? Uh, Dwarden. Dwarden, yeah. right. Okay. Dwarden. Which, I mean, people obviously have their own view on the, the level of stupidity of some of the names in Age of Sigmar, <laughs> so we'll just draw a veil. Um, <laughs> let me just put Games Workshop in the book for Dwarden. <laughs> G-W Dwarden. <laughs> um, so the dwarves of Warhammer really effectively started out as copy and paste from Lord of the Rings. They were, even though there's no accents in Lord of the Rings, they were aggressively Scottish and fundamentally fit into the medieval kind of period of Warhammer via Norse myth and Germanic folktales of beings who live underground. So they're very much the idea of Norse dwarves. That's kind of the source for the dwarven culture in Warhammer as a source material. They do differentiate. There are several different types of dwarf, and we'll have a look at those in short order. No pun intended. Hey. Hey. Ah. Ah. Oh, ah. He's going in the book. That's the first short joke. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of biology... They stand somewhere between four and four and a half feet tall on average, almost equally as wide. They're incredibly muscular. The age of an average dwarf is somewhere between 70 and 100. Those are the most commonly encountered dwarves in Warhammer. 70 Uh, to 100 years old sounds very long-lived relative to the lifestyle of that kind of culture and environment, you know. If you uh, mm. to say it was analogous to kind of medieval Dark Ages Britain, where people probably only lived to a grand old age of 30 to 35 in terms of humans, that is, is that realistic? Is that fair that, you know, a human would probably only live to like into his 30s, maybe 40s? I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, dwarven society really is based on age. The longer you live, the more esteem is put on you. An interesting fact about dwarves, as they age, they don't get weaker. They just stay the same strength. So the older a dwarf gets, not necessarily they continuously get stronger, but they do get stronger over the years and then stay at that level of vigor and capacity until they're either killed in battle, die of old age, or gain a fatal illness. Mm. So while they are hardy, they can become ill. What is old age for a dwarf then? If you're saying 70 to 100 is the average, is that the average age of those dwarves encountered by other races? Like, Do we know how old they can grow to? Yes, that's the average age of dwarves in the world, outside meeting other people, gaining friends, grudges, and uh, wounds. (laughs) It might be useful just to run through the kind of different bands of their society in terms of the development of a dwarf and what they can achieve and what their responsibilities are. So really, a dwarf comes to physical maturity somewhere between the age of 18 and 20, whereas most humans it's considered roughly 18 is when you're mature in Warhammer. For dwarves, it's round about the same and you get a name day. 
So that's a celebration of you as an individual and your broad acceptance into your clan, your family. You're recognized really as an individual who's expected to go out and graft a little bit. Do they celebrate birthdays up to that point? No, not really. There are familial celebrations, but in general, it it deals with these kind of threshold birthdays. So it's like me. I'm going to be 50 this year. That's a big threshold for me. So I don't. I didn't give a shit about being 49. I didn't give a shit about you being 49 either. <laughs> it, it was commented on. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, it was so offensive, I'm not even going to put it in the book. I'm going to remember that shit. Um, <laughs> there's not enough so, of this book to write just how much of a grudge i have <laughs> so they obviously pass the uh, or mark the passing of years because they need to be able to establish a kind of framework for the young in their society but these are not important celebrations not worthy of kind of notice by a broader dwarven society unless they hit these thresholds so the 18 to 20, you gain physical maturity. You're expected then to start behaving like a dwarf, like, a, you know, living up to the ideals of your ancestors and following the commandments of your family, your clan leaders, the royal clan, kings, and people assigned to run holds, that kind of thing. Really, then, the next threshold is when you turn 30, and that's when you get the name of Nubble Stubby. <laughs> Um, thanks. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Which really is the uh, point where you are expected to have gone into apprenticeship. It's when you begin learning your trades in earnest. There's lots of guilds, and we'll talk about them in a little while, but yeah, Nubble Stubby. Nubble Stubby. Oh, adorable. I've just, I was just thinking, actually, on, on the topic of adorable, I just realized like, you never really hear much about dwarven kids. Like, dwarven children must be so small. <laughs> but, but angry. <laughs> yeah, just grudging <laughs> out of the womb, you know. <laughs> I'm putting my mother's womb in the book because I was fucking in there for so long. Like, could a human, a human could probably hold a dwarven child in one hand. Yeah, but I mean, very, very quickly, that hand would be on the floor, <laughs> having been sliced yeah. off by an angry dwarf mother. <laughs> yeah, they have Ben. They have dwarven petting zoos where they just, you know, yeah. human kids go and just, you know, stroke and handle, manhandle dwarf children. That's what happens. Uh, I'd go there. I thought I'd... the dwarven petting zoo was like one of those rides at a Slaneshi theme park. <laughs> <laughs> that too. It can be both. That too. <laughs> right, the next then threshold is when sometime between 30 and 70, they become known as the Natromi, which are the fuller formal apprenticeships where dwarves are then expected to uphold all their responsibilities to their clan and to their family. It's when they really become full members of dwarf society. And that culminates with a formal presenting to the clan of the person, very much like the kind of debutante balls of the South in America. It's when they've demonstrated their capacity to fulfill responsibilities, to act honorably, to take care of family members and uphold values of not only their clan but dwarven culture as a whole so at the age of 70 they become something called altromi which is full beards basically 
a full citizen of the Dwarven Empire, of the Karaz Angkor, which is the everlasting realm or ever-living realm of the Dwarves. These are the dwarves that are encountered the most by people who are not dwarves, either in terms of facing them as an army or fulfilling some kind of duty somewhere between the dwarf and human empires because of their age-old alliance with Sigmar. If they then survive this kind of period, get to the age of 120, they become what's called Lanctromi, which is the long beards. These then are the kind of more mature dwarven citizens. They are the ones whose opinion are given increased weight. Uh, They're kind of trusted and reliable. Interestingly, in the game, longbeards is a unit type. So all the longbeards get together and they form like a solid mass of troops, dependable, that are not going to break, that dwarven armies can kind of focus around and, you know, they use them as anchors in uh, military campaigns. That's amazing. <clears throat> like the real kind of like backbone of the, the Yeah, the absolutely. Army. Absolutely. Um, we then get to, if, if the dwarf survives to 150, they become what's called Thongrink or Thongrink, although I prefer th- th- Throngrink. I don't know why it just makes me laugh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and these then are the elders of the clan. These are the kind of advisors to the leadership. They're the ones who assume through really just surviving that long authority within a clan. And do they have longer beards than the long beards? Yeah, it's it, as an important thing about dwarf biology is that their vanity is exclusively focused on their beards. Amazing. So the longer a dwarf's beard, the older he is, and then you'll see lots of accoutrements put in, bands of precious metal, intricate braiding, gold. You're looking at precious stones, that kind of thing, kind of weaved into the beard. They ever lose things in their beard? Oh, they must do. <laughs> like their car keys. Yeah. <laughs> I would. Like Marge Simpson's hair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but after this, I am putting you in the book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) he laughed (laughs) so really most dwarves then elders of the clan will pass away between 150 to 200 with most dwarves passing away long before that either through combat or just through old age uh, or happenstance dwarves then who manage to live longer say for instance get to be the age of 200 these are the ones that are referred to as uh, Grom Troby, and these are the great beards. These are the kind of supermodel beard dwarves. They're mostly beard. They are 70% beard. Yeah. 70% beard, and the other 30% is just weaponry. Uh, and it's <laughs> a well armed beard. Yeah, weaponry on its own, but the beard has weapons as well. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and these really then you're looking at like leaders of the council of elders, guild masters. These are the kind of supreme positions of power within dwarven culture. And then if a dwarf gets to be 200, they really can live an extraordinarily long time after that, as most of the things that were going to kill them, they've outlasted. So Wow. Once a great beard will kind of stay a great beard and, as I said, stay as strong and powerful and vigorous as they were for as long as they're alive, once they get to 400, 
they become something called a karug karug <laughs> karug thrombi, which is a living ancestor. So wow. they really become almost, you know, the figure of the white dwarf is a living mm. ancestor. He is incredibly old. Mm. And and who is the white dwarf again? He's the demigod folk hero of the dwarven race. Ah, I see. Right. So if, if you remember, Ben, you thought he was the coolest one because he would just turn up, kill all the baddies, and then sleep with all the women. You had a kind of, <laughs> you know, angry Casanova dwarf is what your take was. Yeah, he was, was your idol. Yeah, yeah he's, the, he's a badass. <laughs> like, like I'm just trying to um, comprehend the aging of the dwarfs. So they stay strong and vigorous even through old age. And yeah. they can still die. They can still perish through illness, through battle. And you said old age. Considering that, you know, when if, if they were to die of old age, is there any point where, you know, they become less able at all? They become decrepit, much, in, you know, like we do humans in older age. We just lose the capacity. Or is it literally just like binary? They are on and then they are just off. They are alive and they are just dead. Yeah, it, it's the alive or dead. The only thing that can cause a dwarf to be infirm really is uh, developing some sort of degenerative illness, which is incredibly rare given their constitution, um, mm. or you know, losing a limb in battle. Yeah. That's it. I mean, the oldest dwarf on record is still alive in the kind of current Warhammer days. He's the kind of master runesmith almost the kind of supreme runesmith of the dwarven race called Crag the Grim. He is 1,620 years old. Fucking hell. And is he just as strong? Absolutely. Stronger. He probably came to great, uh, his kind of rise to power probably began in earnest when he was in his 300s. Right. So he travels with armies and forges huge rune weapons and gold and steel mixed runes and runes made of the kind of dwarven precious metal Gromil. And there's actually a model of him. Wow. Uh, and he's he looks like a really, really, really pissed off blacksmith in a forge. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm going to, at the back of the book, I'm going to put in grudgy show notes so that I remember... <laughs> <laughs> to put in Crag Grim. So Crag the Grim, okay, so that sounds like the kind of name I'd associate with a dwarf that was 1620 or 22 years yeah. old. Um, was he always called Crag the Grim, you know? It's like it's like when I meet somebody who's like in their 20s who's called Marjorie. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I, th I thought you only get called Marjorie when you're like 70, you know? <laughs> like, was he always called Crag the Grim? I mean, I think it probably progressed. Originally, he was just maybe Crag the Irritated, uh, and it just <laughs> yeah, kind of developed yeah, yeah, yeah. over yeah. time. Uh, Crag mean, the it, Slightly Miffed. Sli <laughs> <laughs> and here is our newborn Crag the Cheesed Off. <laughs> well, you know, when you're living for over 600, over half a century, a lot can happen. A lot can develop. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. you're, you know, one day you wake up, you're, uh, you know, Manfred Skaven lover. The next week, you're <laughs> Manfred Skaven slayer, you know? A lot can happen. Because he's, he's, not, he's not over half a century. He's over a millennia and a half old. Yeah. He's 1600. Oh, 20, shit. Not All right. Okay. Yeah, I'd be pretty... Craggy, fucked off. Like, like, Why am I still now? alive? 
<laughs> That's why he Maybe keeps following just... all these armies. He's just trying to find the most high risk situation that he can so that he can fucking exit. <laughs> Drop Mike, I'm out. Maybe he got his name because he was asked to describe his living situation. <laughs> He's in a dwarf old folks home. <laughs> prunes and custard every fucking day man it is craggy green <laughs> i haven't had a solid shit in years <laughs> and when i did one of my friends hammered it <laughs> and made this sword out of it i mean it's a lovely sword but it's a boo sword <laughs> and made this spoon with which i eat my mushed up custard <laughs> it's my yogurt spoon yogurt spoon <laughs> are you a busy young dwarf whether you're leading a trade caravan anti-elf patrol or forging great works beneath kazakakarak does the thought of the racial grudges we bear make you feel almost human culturally we must always make time for grudges that is why i susan goldhammer have created the Mini Book of Grudges, a collection of small irritations and wrongs done to our race that will allow you to grudge on the go. Nine out of 10 rune priests say that if you spend at least 10 minutes a day contemplating grudges, you can keep your anger at acceptable levels for daily life, as no self-respecting dwarf should be content. This 15-foot scroll contains 1,200 mini grudges. Examples include, your neighbor didn't smile the right way, your once loyal bed stubbed your toe. Time itself has caused you to come late for a meeting. You suspect your partner of liking you. Your toothbrush is hiding from you. And many, many, many more. The mini book of grudges. Stay pissed off. So yeah, that's the age range and scope of a dwarf they are bound up in the kind of worship of people worship the age and therefore seniority of dwarves the older you are regardless of whether you're good or bad the more likely you are to be put in charge of something whether it's an expedition or a settlement or join the kind of council of elders that kind of idea it might be helpful just to talk briefly about the clan structures each hold is made up of several clans. We have at the top the royal clans. These are the kings and the kind of princes, princesses, and the kind of ruling elite of the uh, dwarven cultures. What you find is very much like medieval Europe. Royal clans intermarry, and it's unusual for a royal clan to marry off a son or a daughter to a lesser clan, in like one of the kind of larger throngs, which are the kind of great army clans of dwarven culture. It does happen if some leader or some member of a regular, in quotes, clan performs a great feat on behalf of dwarven culture and therefore is worthy of recognition and elevation. Very much a thing to bear in mind is that not only do dwarves have personal honour, but they also have family and clan honour. So the actions of any given dwarf reflects upon the entirety of their clan. And there have been instances where an entire clan has been exiled because of the traitorous deeds of one of their members to kind of teach them a lesson. 
So below royal clans, then you have the Council of Elders, and that's our elders, and that's what we've said is one of the supreme roles of the older dwarves is to advise the kings, advise the royal clans, and in some instances, the guilds. Sounds like they're the main people that rule the dwarven race, if they've got the ear of the king and the royals. I think they're the day-to-day the uh, effective administration of holds and dwarven culture in general. Got it, got it. We then break into very much a load of guilds. So there's for every kind of job or role, you have a guild which kind of has control over training, apprenticeship, that kind of thing over the culture associated with a given job. So you have things like engineers. Those are the that's the most common one outside of dwarf holes. These are the guys that make the war machines, the guns, and in some instances even the enormous trains. So <laughs> while Skavens are suspected to have trains, dwarves one hundred percent have trains with the big engines that have like angry dwarf faces on the front. Uh, Again, I'll show note the train. It's spectacular. A dwarven Thomas the Tank engine. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas the Grudge engine. (laughs) So with these engineers, with their massive war machines trundling around the old world and beyond, they're really kind of like the demonstrative power of dwarven innovation, up to and including aircraft. So they have gyrocopters, which are small, angry helicopters. And then they've got their gyro bombers, which are larger, angrier, Sikorsky-like helicopters uh, that drop all kinds of armaments on their foes. How are they powered? Are gyro- I, I, in my head, I've got steam. a kind of like Da Vinci style. Oh, it's steam, is it? Right. Yeah. Right. I thought it was like, I had some sort of like Da Vinci style like bike, you know, the pedal. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it spins round. So. Yeah, they just fuck them off the top of mountains and they just, you know, constantly <laughs> whirl down very slowly. Yeah. It's more of a yeah. glider than it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> more of an angry glider. Yeah. It should be noted that there is a kind of schism within dwarven culture between progressive engineers and traditionalist engineers. Traditionalist engineers are the ones that focus on stone throwers and bolt throwers as war machines. There's something called a grudge thrower, which is not. It's a stone thrower, but each of the stones that it throws has like runes in it. A strongly worded message. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) dear receiver you may be wondering why you've got this message carved into a stone well let me tell you (laughs) but they're also that schism tumbles down through all of dwarven culture so there are entire clans that refuse to use black powder weapons and that only use like uh, crossbows and bolt throwers and stone throwers rather than you know the cannon the organ guns the amazingly effective dwarf fire cannon what does that throw? <laughs> Bad language. Chili. <laughs> so besides uh, engineers, we then get into miners. That would, those would be, I think... Under 16. Per capita. <laughs> this is where Jemima comes in. <laughs> but they're the most common in terms of guild. If you're going to bump into a dwarf guilds person, it's going to be, nine times out of ten, a miner. The models for those are spectacular because it's a dwarf with an impressive beard, with a tin hat, a huge pickaxe, 
and a candle kind of dripping wax from the front of his head down into his beard. Uh, <laughs> and all they do is mine. Hence, miners. <laughs> wow. <laughs> scene. And scene. And we get into then the kind of final of the uh, big three guilds, very reminiscent of Skaven, and there are great clans, but I appreciate that that gets me in the book. Yeah, I'll go you going in the book. Hold on, let me write that. Comparing dwarves with Skaven. I need to learn it right faster. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I need to learn shorthand. No pun intended. <laughs> Pearl for making dwarf short joke. So the final of the big three guilds, runesmiths. And these are the... Now, magic user is the wrong word. These are the magical blacksmiths of the dwarven race. An interesting bit of information on dwarves is they can't see the winds of magic. There are, you know, like magic users in general can see the winds of magic. And so humans can see it, elves can see it, uh, the slan and so on and other eviler races are able to recognize and harness the winds of magic in their kind of windy form. Dwarves can't. Um, and, (laughs) And it goes back to the distrust that they place in any form of magic because it entered the world at the collapse of the polar gates. And that had a devastating impact on the dwarves and their living ancestors, their ancestor gods at the time. So what runesmiths do is they're able to feel and recognize the types of winds of magic that are around them that blow through mountains and wherever else. And what they do is they forge that energy into a rune, into a metal band, which they shape into the dwarf runes, which are based on the kind of real-world Norse runes. And that magical energy is trapped within that item. And what they do then is that rune is affixed to a weapon. Some of the more skilled runesmiths do it by simply carving the shape of the rune into an item. And thus the energy is sucked into that kind of negative space and then imbues the item that they have carved the rune into with the associated kind of spell, in quotes, or magical ability. So if they carve it directly into the weapon, say, and it sucks that kind of magical energy into the negative space created by carving out the rune, it's not necessarily about the material that it's put into, it's about the shape of the rune itself. That's the thing that captures that energy, is that right? 95% of the time, yes. There are obviously uh, magical elements like Gromil and Ithilmar that the dwarves can forge. There are certain runes that only can be put into like really strong steel. So those are the things that would affect armor and kind of protection abilities and weapon abilities there's then runes that are carved into walls or placed into walls that prevent magic from coming into the area that they're in and kind of increase the sturdiness of the fortifications that kind of thing they use the shape of a rune as a kind of prism within which to refract the magical energy of the winds of magic and because of the skill of the runesmiths that can either be in an actual physical rune that's put onto something or 
the carved directly, same yeah. process used but to carve the rune into something. The latter of which being the more skilled. Yes, the latter of which being the more skilled, because what you're doing is you're really altering negative space on an item or a place and right. focusing that magical energy into it like a prism, yeah. And mm. is there a correlation, even though they don't use the winds of magic per se, is there a correlation between the particular types of runes that they carve and particular winds of magic? Like, do you get elemental runes that imbue weapons with, I don't know, fire or frost or, you know, that that kind of thing? I mean, the short answer is yes. There are runes that you carve into weapons to turn them into flaming weapons, and that's particularly important when you're hunting trolls, because as we've discovered in the past, trolls really regenerate unless you uh, attack them with fire. There's runes for the protection against different types of elements. So if you're working in a forge, you're working with lava, if you're working with any of these kind of super heated items, you're going to want a level of protection uh, the larger the items that you're producing. Right, okay. I think they do recognize there are different effects associated with different elements, in quotes, of magical energy, and mm. thus are able to mix and match those as they need. Like rune pick and mix. Yeah, rune pick and mix. So in, in that regard, they are quite like elves, insofar as they're able to harness the full amount of magical energy albeit through the rune making process mm. whereas humans can only focus on one of the eight winds of magic gotcha so the dwarves use magic despite i mean albeit through runes a, a slightly kind of long-winded way but they still utilize the winds of magic despite the fact they they don't approve or condone the use of magic or its existence because of its origins uh, again, short answer is yes. The fundamental issue they have with it is they are aware that magic is a corrupting influence drawn from the chaos god mm. Zinch. So they're aware that that being exists. They're aware of its influence. And they feel that if any kind of ability is trapped within a rune, because the runes last for as long as the rune is whole, the magic okay. doesn't dissipate. It stays there forever. So it's constantly refracting within that magical prism of the rune uh, okay. and thus is beyond the mutability provided by Zinch. Got it. Gotcha. It's kind of using it at arm's length kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and making it yeah. as dependable as the stone that surrounds them. Mm -hmm. Nice. Got it. Okay. I think perhaps, you know, next episode or towards the end of the Dwarven season, we'll have a deep dive into runes and the different types of runes and, and what have you, because I think that'd be interesting. Yes, yeah. please. 100%. So those are the real top three guilds, the engineers, the miners, and the runesmiths. You then have goldsmiths, carpenters, masons, that kind of idea, the kind of day-to-day -day trades that a society needs to be able to operate, especially underground. Interestingly, with carpenters, you don't really associate carpentry with dwarves, but they use a specific type of wood that's grown within the mountains called iron bark. And anytime <laughs> there's like a big throne or some elaborate item needs to have a, a woody element to it, they use iron bark. And is it, sorry, grows under the ground? No, it grows in within the mountains. Oh, um, I see. Right. Okay. So um, when a copse of the iron bark is discovered, either in the mountains or in the surrounding plains, which happens quite rarely outside of the mountains, they send 
a, a huge group of warriors to protect it because it's viewed as a, a, an invaluable resource for uh, uh, creativity. And a to- totally ridiculous question, but do they use it sustainably? Or is it kind of seen that once that resource is exhausted, that it's done? Do they Are they able to like cultivate the land and grow more of those trees? I believe ironbark requires a specific set of circumstances to grow, which can't be replicated outside of nature. Dwarves right. do have farmers. There's a, like a farmer's guild and right. herdsmen and that kind of thing. And they are boreal. Uh, they, I mean, that's where the original conflict came from with the goblins. Um, <laughs> but I don't believe that, I mean, dwarves are so avaricious for honor and material and precious metals, stereotypically so, that I, I suspect the word sustainable can't really be, be used. I mean, for fuck's sake, they invented the aeroplane within Warhammer. So <laughs> I'm not sure that it's uh, it, it's going to be something that's uh, on They're their not environmentally mind. conscious. Mm. I mean, another another kind of interesting guild are the brewmasters. So these are the Excellent. ones that make all the booze. The most famous of which is Joseph Bugman, who produces oh. Bugman Six X, which is a, a mixture between a porter and a rye lager or rye ale that would floor you after <laughs> half a glass. And he originally started out as there was a a regiment, his rangers, Bugman's rangers, and these would travel out into the world carrying huge barrels of booze with them and kind of boister the morale of the army. There's still models for him, or there was, before the world got blown up. And he uh, gives your army buffs and gets units drunk and makes them brave and immune to fear, that kind of idea. Nice. Gets them tanked. (laughs) <laughs> so those are the kind of big broad strokes of the the guilds and then underneath all those guilds is what's referred to as the throng and that is just simply the massed dwarfness of a whole's kind of occupants it's comprised of lots of different clans all underneath the kind of rulership of the royal clan and the council of elders the throng is also what dwarven army is called so they see no difference between the military aspect of dwarven culture and dwarven culture as a whole. Mm. Right. Mm. That's cool. So, in, yeah, as I say, big picture, that's what a dwarf hold or a dwarf clan looks like. There are tens, if not hundreds, of clans within Warhammer. The kind of biggest in influence is the clan of Thorgrim Grudgebearer, who's the High King, and he dwells in Kazagakarak in the kind of armpit of the world's edge and grey mountains i wouldn't say that to his face you'd make it into his book well i I wouldn't be able to say it to his face i'm too tall burn ben i'm waiting i'm waiting for acknowledgement (laughs) Um, (laughs) so in terms of the kind of structure of the holds themselves i mean you've talked about the societal structure but in terms of the kind of architectural layout of a hold i i mean in my mind i have this idea of like very very large cavernous spaces underground in which domestic and commercial and industrial buildings i say buildings with bunny ears are carved Mm. into Mm. the rock face you know around the sides of the cavern is that accurate and follow-up question is there an order in which they're populated do you have you know like in this skaven skaven what do they call them 
uh, Warren. Warren, yeah, sorry, thank you, Chris. Um, in the Skaven Warrens, it was quite hierarchical, wasn't it? You had the kind of head Skaven further up, physically further up in the Warren, and the kind of slaves down in the bottom. Is there a similar sort of thing? Is there kind of like an under-society of dwarves and kind of royalty at the top? Is that how it's structured? Great questions, and I think we, it, it's a good point to deal with them now. In terms of the... Karazankor, which is the everlasting realm, which is the totality of dwarvenness, dwarven population. You're looking at something that stretches the length of the world's edge mountains, so almost from the chaos wastes right down to the tip of uh, the Southlands or Africa, as it would be in our world. So not only is it within that very kind of broad stripe, but then there are outposts dotted around the world, usually in or near mountains. And in terms of how they talk to each other and how they communicate and how you're able to travel between holes, there is the Great Dwarf Underway, which is a constant, almost straight road that runs the length of the World's Edge Mountains, then with branches off into other areas to be able nice. to get into the different holes. Um, like a big dwarf highway. Big dwarf highway, yeah. BDH. Uh, and... <laughs> Perhaps kind of important to discuss how a, a whole is structured then in terms of connecting to the dwarf, the BDH. Very much like in your question, Ben, you're talking about the hierarchy of Skaven. Dwarves mm. do have a similar hierarchy, but it's reversed. The dwarves of lesser importance, in quotes, are at the top. They're at the surface. The more important the dwarf is, the deeper they are underground. That's uh, so and cool. they use the word deep to really describe their regions. So at the very bottom is what's referred to as the Royal Deep. And that's where the Royal Clan for that whole sits. And that's where they hold power. And it's connected quite closely to the Dwarven Underway. And then they have the Armory Deep and the Runesmiths Deep and Clan Deeps for the different clans that are within the hold. So yes, yeah, so very much an upside down pyramid of power. Uh, with cool. the m most powerful at the bottom. And then, uh, as you've described, Ben, there would be elaborate and intricate kind of frontages, like in our world, the city of Petra in Jordan. You know, it's all carved into the very stone itself. A lot of these areas, a lot of these deeps, and certainly the Dwarven Highway, weren't constructed completely by the dwarves. What they did was they repurposed enormous caverns within these mountains. That's not to say that they didn't have to tunnel for miles to connect them, but they were the construction of the Dwarven Empire is aided by the fact that they use caverns wherever possible. And for those of you who've played Total War Warhammer 1, I think, there's fantastic battles that you can fight in the Dwarven Underway. I think you can do it in the other versions as well. That's and it just looks spectacular. It looks amazing because it's absolutely enormous. And you kind of fight the length of it. Um, dwarves don't just live in holds. They also live in settlements above ground. There are holds that have very little underground elements to them. And they build these enormous fortresses stacked up across the face of a mountain. And then, of course, there's dwarves that live away from the mountain. They live in usually, more often than not, the Empire or Norska. There are really five types of dwarf 
in Warhammer. The first being the dwarves of the Everlasting Realm. So these are the dwarves that are in the World's Edge Mountains and the kind of stereotypical dwarf within Warhammer. We then have the Norse dwarves, which very much, if you can imagine... Here we go. Uh, the mountain from Game of Thrones mushed together with Tyrion from Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, a really buff, angry dwarf. <laughs> it sounds uh, like the hell pits uh, when they're trying to breed, like, uh, rats <laughs> with wolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, Tyrion. Uh, but he's massive. It's fine. I didn't expect that analogy to be completely contained within one single other IP. <laughs> I was expecting it to be so like Tyrion. Wow. Okay, <laughs> that works. I can I can that fucking works. picture that. <laughs> so the, these are the kind of Viking dwarves. These are the kind of true to Norse mythology traditionalist dwarves. They have no truck with gunpowder at all. It's all axes, picks, crossbows, that kind of idea. Nice. Uh, they also have the dwarf berserker, which is a, well, it's that mountain Tyrion dwarf, but going a bit rag. Combined with another character from Game of Thrones. <laughs> Combined with another character from Game of Thrones who is going to be Arya. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty rag, has to be said. Am I getting put in the book there, Chris? Is that why you're waving that at us? My quill. <laughs> My quill. Oh, oh, he's going for the book. He's going for the book. He's going for the book. <laughs> Where did the Nordic dwarves... Is it Nor North Nordic dwarves? Is that what they were Nordic. called? Norse dwarves. Yeah. Oh, the Norse dwarves. Where do they live? In in, in the Nor Norse. <laughs> yeah, but where? In the, like outdoors, <laughs> indoors, underground, <laughs> overground, wombling free? Dwarveling free. <laughs> Dwarveling um, free. It, it, it's very much like a kind of traditionalist dwarven culture. It's mostly in mountains. Their capital is a place called Karak Drak, which is the kind of dragon hold. Right. Okay. So very much the traditionalist idea of what a dwarf is, but surrounded by snow. That's yeah, that makes that. sense. Right. I, I pictured them like fraternizing with Kislev or something, but they that's not who they are. Kislev is somewhere else. Kislev is further south. So if you can imagine Kislev, then you've got Troll Country, and then you've got Norska across the top. Oh, There's the... they're, they're even more north. Oh, yeah. Wow. I thought Kislev was like the northernmost, should we call it, allied civilization, if you like. But yes. the dwarves actually reside more north than that. Are they closer to the Chaos Wastes? Yes, and they're constantly at war with Chaos Marauders and uh, Chaos Warrior Hordes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. Some of the other types of dwarves are the Grey Dwarves. They dwell in the Grey Mountains, which is the offshoot from the World's Edge Mountains that goes along under the Empire and into Bretonia. And right. they are viewed as dwarves who've effectively given up the hardy, tough living of the World's Edge Mountains, because they're constantly under siege by Greenskins and Skaven, and live in the relatively trouble-free mountains in the Western Empire that's not as constantly under siege, but while still being under siege. It's like moving out to the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. You get mm -hmm. a, a kind mm -hmm. of slightly more middle-class Skaven trying to kill you. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last two types of dwarf, then, we've got the Imperial Dwarves, 
they fall into two types, really. The Imperial Dwarves live and work within the Empire amongst humanity. And these are, you know, 99% of the time, this is the type of dwarf an Imperial citizen will bump into on a day-to-day basis. Now, they're either honouring old pacts and agreements with the Empire in terms of their clan, or they've become what's referred to as the holdless. These are clans whose holes have either been captured by their enemy or they've been kicked out by the royal clan of that hold. And so they perform possibly the most distasteful activity to dwarves, which is trading. Dwarves are not by nature in the uh, Warhammer world traders, which is kind of counterintuitive, I think, but the Imperial Mm. dwarves kind of make up for it. Interesting. So they're out of the hold and into the book. They've they've pissed off the royals. <laughs> yeah. I'm putting yeah. them in the book. <laughs> Fucking dwarf traders. Yeah, right. Sons of bitches. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to this special edition of How's It Made. I'm Heather on How's It Made Hammerhand, and with me is my assistant, Tim. Hello, Tim. My, my name is Osak. <laughs> You're a funny bastard, Tim. Today we'll be looking at the legendary Grudge Thrower, also known as the Grudge Tosser or Goblobber, and asking the questions on every self-respecting dwarf's lips. How's it made? Tim, how's it made? Um... Don't fucking show off, Tim. Get over there and stand on the mark. As you can see, we have the latest model of the Grudge Thrower here in the studio. The Grudgematic 9000. Its operation is really quite simple. Here, let me demonstrate. First, you take one of these big bloody boulders and you chisel a wee grudge and gazolid on the surface, like so. Tim for being a fucking dullard. Here we go. Once you've done that, you edge a wee rune on it as well for extra oomph. I think I'll go with a fire rune for this example. Then you simply load the boulder into the boulder holder. Ratchet back the tensioner. Adjust the targeting using the tossle spanner. And then pull this firing lever. Brace yourself, Tim! (laughs) Flombe. Now, while we're trying to put Tim out, let's head over to our equipment specialist, Mozik the Merry, who's at the main grudge thrower factory in Nuln as we speak, to find out how's it made. Mozik? Thanks, Tim. Well, it's very simple. You take a stone base, you reinforce it with strongium, you bolt two uprights using dialectic dimensional dissipation, pass a nub and rod through the centre of the two uprights with two 4x4 lengths of iron bark, creating a pivot point, fit a capping harmogeniser to the end of those 4x4s, with another 4x4 extending to a carved stone pole, creating the boulder holder, then wedge an exceedingly springy sprung spring between the newly formed thrower arm and the stone base, bolt on another two uprights, this time using bilateral uniphase distraction, insert the final nub and rod, wrap a length of rope around the thrower arm and the second rod, creating the tensioner, and chuck in a ratchet and firing lever made from the increasingly rare unobtainium. And there you have it, Tim. One grudge thrower ready for action. Right, let's get pished. Back to you, Tim. Back to you, Tim, indeed. <laughs> Thanks, pal. Well, there you go, ladies and gents. An absolute peach of a walkthrough by the brilliant and increasingly inebriated Mozak Lemere. I think we can all agree the grudge thrower is a total cracker. I certainly know one chap who thinks so, and I right, Tim. 
<laughs> you bloody Jesse. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And now you'll never get caught off guard if anyone asks you, how's it made? Tally-ho! The final type, then, is is a type we'll just touch on briefly, which are the Chaos Dwarves. These are the corrupted remnants of the earlier dwarf migrations out east when they went into what's it called Zorn Uzgul or Uzkul, which is the great skull lands. So that's if you go to Kislev and then just head right, that's where that is. Zorn Uzgul is that area that looks a bit like a liver hanging down the eastern side of the world's edge mountains. On that note, their place names and cities they either sound like you're half drunk, Karazgul, or you've got something stuck in your throat or something like Karazakakakak. <laughs> <laughs> They're all quite hard to say. Oh, make it a oh, point. He's going in the book of grudges. He no, is going in fun of dwarves. <laughs> okay, cool. Me right. Okay. Darren I think, I think, being I think a you bitch. probably just need to put, you know, like a tally mark next to that one because I I reckon that's probably gonna be a recurring yeah. grudge. I love the texture of these books. They're kind of like a suede soft yeah. touch. Soft I wouldn't touch thing. them too much because I don't think that pen's gonna stay on there for long. But <laughs> yeah, true. That was the that was three fucking layers that took. Jesus. My bank of crunches is smudged. <laughs> <laughs> how dare you how dare you we touched there on the uh, the concept of holdless and kind of punishments within dwarven culture they really only have three kind of broad areas of rules the kind of three main rules and those are treason or betrayal of your king that's the first one you then have cowardice in the face of the enemy, and then you have theft. And those are the kind of three crimes that can be committed. And every other crime that we could think of will boil down into one of those three. So, for instance, murder is viewed as denying the king an effective warrior. So that's ah, treason. And usually it's either death or exile for those kinds of crimes. And depending on who the perpetrator is and who the victim is, it can be either that person is exiled or their family or their clan is exiled. So sorry, it was something to do with the king theft and what was it? What was the third one? Cowardice in battle. Cowardice in battle. Right, so can we try a few of these then, right? So like adultery, where does that, where where would that say? That's theft of someone's spouse. Right, okay. I'm I'm trying desperately to think of other crimes. (laughs) Like uh, another example would be slander. Slander is theft of someone's reputation. Right, okay. okay. Within dwarven culture. What about aggravated assault? Well, depending on what the resulting injuries are, that's either going to be theft of a dwarf's ability to serve, theft of a dwarf's ability to effectively pursue their job, or it's going to be incapacitating a warrior of the king which means that then that's treason wow okay what about drug possession drug possession (laughs) um, driving under the influence (laughs) dwarfing under the influence what happens if you've if you found with a bag of ass spiders (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, it's for personal use only, officer. It's for personal use only. Uh, you've got seven ounces of that on your person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, oh. Also, your asshole's leaking. You're either <laughs> impacting your own capacity to fulfill your duties or you're incapacitating other people for their duties. So you're either, it's one way or the other, it's a betrayal of your king, but it's right. one is more egregious than the other. Mm, and, okay. and driving under the influence, that's uh same thing. Positively encouraged. Didn't Bugman, like he went around and actually bloody got people tanked in war, whether you're a gyrocopter pilot or... <laughs> You know Drink I mean? this. So, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you step in that gyrocopter, have a tank of this, mate. You're not, you're not half drunk enough. I don't think it's a crime in dwarven society. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so those are the kind of three bands of crimes that everything else will fit into. And the most common punishment for these is exile, which is either an amount of time or permanent. Do they have executions? No, because you're still of use. You're still a dwarf out in the world who is of use to the dwarven race. So not only is there a duty for an individual dwarf to their king, but there is a duty of leadership and kingship to the rest of the whole dwarven race. Uh, So they don't act needlessly. They don't act heedlessly either. So there is an opportunity for redemption for a lot of things. Speaking of redemption... The exile is the imposition of a punishment from a position of authority. There is a band of culture within dwarves referred to as the slayers. Uh. And these are dwarves who have some horrific event has happened to them. And whether or not it has, you know, it's the difference between criminality and wrongdoing. So if there is a stain on their honor, but it's not associated with a crime, if they were the victim of something rather than the perpetrator, they can elect to take the slayer vow as a way of washing the stain, not only from their honor, but from the honor of their family or their clan. It should be noted that it's a death sentence. Mm. The only path to redemption through the slayer vow is glorious death. There's no coming back from it. And then you become a ginger bungee jumper. Yes, that's at the start of this layer of it. Um, So it's really a dwarf who encounters some existential personal shame or disaster can elect to regain their honor by becoming a slayer. It ends in death. But once you take the slayer vow, you are effectively dead in the eyes of your clan and your hold. Mm. So your name is stricken from records. You know, this is a, a voluntary choice dwarves make. And all your possessions, except for an axe, and if you have it, a chainmail coat, all your other possessions are distributed among your relatives or friends as if the dwarf had died suddenly. So you've got an axe, you've yep. got a snazzy chainmail top, yep. and you're butt naked from the waist down. yeah you're allowed to keep pants right to to accentuate your nakedity (laughs) no (laughs) what you're looking at really is an angry tattooed orange-haired winnie the pooh dwarf okay all right yeah ain't no pot of honey with that motherfucker full pooh bear in the warhammer world yeah can can you give us an example of like what kind of event would have to have happened for somebody to essentially take voluntary death there's really only one 
example that can be cited, and it's only kind of a partial reason, because to ask a slayer what caused him to become a slayer is grounds for him to just kill you on the spot, because he would have to relive the shame that he's trying to get rid of. There's a King Baragor of Carrot Carden. Now, that is the dwarf hold where the Shrine of Grimnir is, which is the chosen god of the Slayers. That's the one with the bungee bridge. Mm. Ah. (laughs) Each Slayer is expected to make a pilgrimage there once on his kind of journey into the afterlife. So his daughter passed away or was killed in some fashion. And he felt so responsible for this that he took the Slayer vow, but it didn't trump his vow as a king, which is the interesting point of the kings of Kadron. He he remained a king, but also a Slayer. Wow. Wow. And to this day, upon assuming kingship, the kings of Kadron all take the Slayer vow immediately after they take their vow of leadership, their kingly vows. Is, is that more symbolic that you, in honour of Grimnir rather than they've got some shame they want to wash themselves of? The king was unable to get rid of the stain of shame from him. He wasn't able to avenge whatever wrong had been done. And given mm. that in the dwarven culture, the sins of the father very much are visited upon the children, his line always strives to try and atone for that shame. And Mm. the interesting thing that happens is they only learn the actual events of that incident after they've taken the Slayer vow, because it's Mm. one of the only Slayer vows that's written down, or one of the only incidents Mm. that's written down, and it's passed from king to king. So the current king of Uh, Carrot Cadron is uh, Ungrim Ironfist, and uh, he's got a cracking miniature, which is a dwarf with a dragon head coat and huge mohawk on the dwarf, not on the dragon. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, Grimnir could have totally washed the shame stain out of him. He just needed jugger buff. That's all. <laughs> jugger buff. Wouldn't that have just have buffed it out? That would have just made it really yeah. shiny. I'm not sure it would have made it go away. That's a different brand. I'm going to put myself in the book for misunderstanding the use of Juggerbuff. That was just ridiculous. I think you've mixed up Juggerbuff and Buggerjuff. <laughs> oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> Easy mistake. Come on. So with the Slayers, there is a, a kind of career progression of sadness. Once they take the Slayer vow, they become what's known as a Troll Slayer. So they completely shave themselves except for their beard and a single mohawk which is spiked up with animal fat and everything is dyed orange. And they are then off into the world. And they do that because they're mirroring what their god Grimnir did on his way up to the Chaos Gates, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, If they're able to kill a troll, so they go up against a troll, they expect to die, but they're not allowed to just give in. They have to fight to the fullest of their capacity so that Grimnir, their god, judges them worthy. So no suicide by inactivity, as it were, or suicide mm. by ineffectiveness. They have to fight no to the best of their ability. No quitters. Yeah. 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 If they manage to kill the troll, it's judged that their shame is so great that killing a troll wasn't going to cut it. So then they progress to becoming giant slayers. They then have to go off and find a giant. Um, and the same process is repeated. And if they survive that... They then progress to becoming, well, it splits in two, really. They then either become dragon slayers, 
which are the most kind of hermitish, if that's a word, dwarves. They avoid everyone and only go after dragons. They almost never speak. Any kind of interaction usually ends up with someone getting an axe in the head. And yeah, they just keep going until they are killed in battle against, it says a dragon, but in general, any kind of huge monster. The other way they go, they become what's called a demon slayer. And so these guys, after they kill the giant, their shame again is still judged to not have been erased, but they gain an ability to kind of identify roughly where demons are or where magicians who summon demons or where chaos worshippers are. So they become a great force against chaos, again, hoping to die in battle. As one might imagine, there's a huge range of mental conditions associated with being a slayer. Um, (laughs) No doubt. They suffer from huge bouts of depression, alcoholism, gluttony. They're constantly on the move, constantly trying to fight. Even though they are loners, there is a thing called the Brotherhood of Grimnir, which is a slayer army. And that has not only units of troll slayers and giant slayers, and then dragon slayers and demon slayers are characters within these armies, but they also have their own war machine, which is the uh, axe thrower, which looks like a robot dwarf on a fulcrum with kind of windmill hands that just shoot axes forward. So it's just like a, a, an axe brilliant. Gatling cannon. Um, That's so funny. <laughs> fucking hell. They sound awesome, but they also sound really sad. It's like a yes, really, like, really uh, it's a really bleak really? tale, isn't it? Very angsty. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just a very very dark end. Yeah, uh, the last thing we want to talk about today is it's a book. Can anyone guess what it's the book of? Oh, is it? it's the book. The great of... book of badgers. Yeah, that's right. It's a badger <laughs> book. Badger, badger, badgers, badger. <laughs> oh, why is nobody chanting that with me? You all you all jumped in this opportunity to do with the wars. Uh, is it the book of grudges? It is. Who told you? <laughs> so the book of grudges is the great kind of racial memory of the dwarves known as the damas crom that's dwarven for the book of grudges um, book of dickheads <laughs> it's managed in quotes only by the high king of the dwarves and only the high king can put grudges in or cross grudges out as being resolved amazing it's done in their blood to give you an idea of how serious they take this that it's written in high king's blood uh, in the book in general only dwarves can look in the book in general there have been a few instances of where in honor of their relation with sigmar that human scribes have been allowed to look in the book but that's been you know it's very much a look but don't touch and there has to be all sorts of uh, conditions on scribes to go in there so it's like a read-only share like yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah got it yeah and redacted as well you know they'll say you can read this paragraph and they'll put you know slabs of stone over the others but don't read this bit about human scribes don't worry don't don't worry about that bit yeah it's fine yeah yeah just pass over that Uh, Given that it's that only the the high king can put grudges in or strike them out, one would assume that it's a very kind of super high level 
grudges. It's the grudges that are concerned the dwarf race as a whole. And nothing could be further from the truth. Any dwarf can petition the High King to put a grudge in the book. And Thorgrim Grudgebearer is very trigger-happy when it comes to putting grudges in books. Um, <laughs> Does he? Does he love a grudge? It, oh, he loves a grudge. I mean, just to give you an example, Kaldor II, who was the High King during the War of the Beard, or the Elf King, he has 437 grudges against his name. And he's been dead for, you know, a millennia at least. Uh, he, so has, he, grudges, sorry, he, has, he has 430-odd grudges against him or in his name that he wrote in the book? No, specifically against him. <laughs> wow. Uh, retrospective, retrospective, sorry, retrospective, yeah, retrospective grudging. Is that allowed? <laughs> Did you just say retrospective? I, th- I don't know what I said. That's why I said it three times. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was the High Elf King during the War of the Beard. So it was dwarves who put it in. But it, uh, those range from, you know, the High Elf Army under his command tipped over my cart to they shaved the dwarven ambassador's beard. It, right, it's, okay. you know, And that's an affront to dwarven honor everywhere. Yeah, like on his shift. Yeah, on his shift, this happened. So fuck that guy. Yeah, right, okay. Interestingly, the being that has the most grudges in the book, the largest count of grudges against a single individual, is is someone we've already talked about in the series. It's Ah. Skarsnik, the great night goblin warlord. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. I thought that would have got a bigger reaction from Kral. Fuck you. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) I'll paste that in, don't worry. Wow. I won't paste that in. That sounded insincere. (laughs) (laughs) By far the pettiest grudge that I've come across. The dwarf isn't named, but it was a dwarf who had pinned a goblin to the ground in the middle of this battle and was punching him in the face repeatedly, but punched him so hard that a tooth shot out of the goblin's mouth and took out the dwarf's eye. So the dwarf had a grudge put against that goblin for the temerity of blinding him while he was being killed. (laughs) Is the goblin still alive, though? No. So you can still have a grudge against the dead? It will be stacked against the goblin race. Right. or Or the warlord associated with that goblin. So what kind of thing would enable that grudge to be cancelled out? The death of all goblins. Jesus fucking Christ. No small thing, man. Yeah, what what <laughs> is the result of being in the book? Is there then a series of events and plans that are put in place to try and negate the grudge? So that dude who lost his eye because he was beating that goblin to a pulp, he's in that book. Now what? What's the process? Yeah, I think there is, a, in Irish history, in ancient Irish history, they would establish something called the body price, which was the amount of money or goods required to compensate a family for the death of one of their family members. So there will be something similar for grudges. There will be, this is the thing we require to be able to strike that from there. Right, okay. Mm. And is that information recorded in the Book of Grudges, or is it just the grudge itself? I think it takes the form of the grudger, the grudgee, the nature of the grudge, and what's required to remove the grudge. Okay, that's interesting. There's a grudge formula that they use, that they apply. 
Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's it's also what dwarven babies are fed. Grudge formula. <laughs> Grudge formula. <laughs> so I, I have a question. Has anyone ever petitioned Thorgrim Grudgebearer to include a grudge in the Book of Grudges against Thorgrim Grudgebearer? No, because that would fall under the betrayal of your king. Oh, that's interesting. You would be exiled. But what but what about people So that, that- makes him immune to being grudged. That doesn't sound right. That sounds a bit it sounds like a fucking loophole. The king is immune to being grudged against. Again, it's the difference between wrongdoing and criminality. A criminal act can be resolved with exile and thus you don't need to be put in the book of grudges. But if something happens and you don't make good on what you were going to say, really the grudge deals with honor rather than justice. Right, okay. It's a point. They're making a point. Yeah. Yeah. So the king that was in some 430 times, were they all entered into the Book of Grudges after he died, after he was king? Oh, no. Those were entered during his reign, during the probably during and immediately after. But if he was the one controlling the book, and it's, you cannot no, make... Kaldor II is a high elf king. Oh, so it's, it's a dwarf. Right. It's the dwarves ah, that, that deal with that. that. Sorry, Darren, you weren't clear. I also misunderstood yeah, that. Darren, in the book, in the book Darren, for Darren not being clear, clear enough. Cunt. Darren wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Cunt is just a separate line. <laughs> so, <laughs> unlike Ben and yours darren and my little book of grudges you don't get individual book of grudges maybe i bet you do i bet like dwarven society it's it's like a cultural thing it's not the book of grudges but everyone has their book of grudges oh well i think that's actually true because the book of grudges as as is discussed amongst kind of warhammer fans is is actually called the great book of grudges and that's Ah. the the kind of dwarven racial memory of pettiness so <laughs> each family and clan will have their own type of journal of grudges what they all defer to kind of the great book of grudges for mm, kind that's of brilliant dwarven culture love it. love it the great book of grudges must be pretty legendary in the world of warhammer i mean are there yes. any are there any races that try and get the book of grudges and steal it is it worth anything um, to anyone else? Or is it worth enough to the dwarves that someone else, their enemies, would want to steal it to piss them off? And are there any characters that are aiming to get into the grudges? They're like, I want to get a million grudges against me. <laughs> is it sport? <laughs> and level up. <laughs> uh, that, that, that was a shotgun of a question. Um, so <laughs> It was really. Spray and pray. <laughs> I, th- I think anyone who's interested in destroying or damaging the Book of Grudges doesn't care that they would be put in the Book of Grudges for doing that. Mm-hmm. I think it, it would be done as something that would be such an affront to dwarven kind that the dwarven race would all take the Slayer vow. In terms of being able to get there, while it's within the dwarven Everpeak, the capital city, there's not a chance in hell of anyone getting near it. However, Thorgrim does go to battle with the Great Book of Grudges in front of him, and he does so on, I think you would call it a battle sled that's been carried by dwarven warriors, and the model for it is comical. There's a lectern in front of him while he's sitting in his throne, 
And on that lectern is the Great Book of Grudges. So it's possible, it's absolutely possible that it could be damaged or captured in battle, but the sheer number of dwarves you would have to get through and the mm. fact that they would become increasingly pissed off when they worked out what you were trying to do means it's all but impossible. Okay. Wow. All right. Nice. Well, lads, that's pretty much everything I wanted to cover today. Uh, and we'll, what we'll do next time is we'll probably, we might have a look at runes in a bit more detail, and then we'll start the dwarven timeline in earnest. Ooh, it's starting with where the fuck the dwarves came from, which is interesting. <gasps> oh, this is exciting. I am excited. Yes. Um, right at the start, you mentioned that the dwarves in Warhammer were based loosely on the Lord of the Ring dwarves. And in the Lord of the Rings, they never had any accents, but the Warhammer dwarves were, and I quote, aggressively Scottish. But yes. in the films of the Lord of the Rings, the main dwarf character is, of course, Scottish. So do you think that there's a kind of feedback loop that the dwarf in the film for the Lord of the Rings was actually given a Scottish accent because of the development of dwarves in Warhammer? Uh, no, is the short answer to that. What I think mm. happened was they sat down and tried to work out which race in the world was the sternest, grumpiest, and had the <laughs> biggest violent tempers. Uh, and we won. We trumped the competition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to wrap up. Awesome. Wrap it up. All right, that's all from us. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about the topics we've discussed in this podcast, you can find all the reference articles in the show notes or on our website at layingdownthelore.com. You can also reach us on our socials, and we've got loads of bonus material available on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash layingdownthelore. We'll be back again next month displaying just how little Chris and I know. Until then, bye. Dwarves, 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 dwarves. <laughs> Listeners, I don't mean to be rude, but you're going in the book. <laughs>